Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? How are you, Mr. Real? I am doing so good. It's uh, life is good, my friend. I'm. Uh, I live in a great country. Um, things go well in my life. Health is good. I know other people have hard times, but I'm in one of those moments where things are going well. How about you? So you scoff at those people going through hard times now? No, I don't scoff at them. You like, look down I, your nose I, at them. Life is life is tough at times, and. Uh, I'm just grateful that mine's not going mine's not going that way. Mine's going really good. Well, I always say I always got to enjoy the little victories when I have them because they're only going to last for a limited amount of time. That's why they're little victories. Yes. Hey, <laughs> today is a very very important day. It's Wednesday, which of course is Mormonism Live Day. It's July 12th, 2023, episode 136 titled The Ouija Board Baptisms. Now, I wanted to mention something else to you because I think you may know this already. It's an important anniversary. Today, it is July 12th, 2023, 180 years ago today, Bill. What happened? Mm. If uh, we're talking about the same thing, which came into my uh, Probably a lot of things happened 180 recently, years right? ago today, but what Mormon related? Wasn't it uh, uh, William Clayton? writing down in the his journal the reception to his awareness of dnc 132 and also it's the day that emma smith got all of the unencumbered lots right very good all the un unencumbered lots in nauvoo so yeah. today is the 180th anniversary of the reception or at least the dictation and the writing down of section 132. now Ten something pages. else is very very important here bill yeah as i was noticing this is that this is episode 136 of Mormonism Live. Now, coincidentally, section 136 in the Doctrine and Covenants is the only section that was written by Brigham Young. Did you know that? Mm, I did not know that. And when you take that information and add it to the anniversary, we can see that Brigham Young wrote section 132. That it's numerology, folks, is what we're doing to put that together. Case and, closed. Uh, case closed. It's done. Nailed it. You did it, RFM. You Thank sealed you. the deal. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sure Somebody has been a fun month it. or so, hasn't it? It has been quite a month. But it's going to be quite a <laughs> night, too. So we, we should bring on our guest, who's Lee Cranbuell. He's written a paper or two scholarly historical papers. He's not a member of the church. And I'm sure he goes to bed every night thanking God for that. And he's never been a member of the church, but he does have ties to Mormonism through his ancestry. And he's a scholar and a gentleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lee Crambule. How are you? Lee? Hi, I am doing very well. I, I'm, I'm pleased to be in your company yeah. this evening in the, in the, in the 
the MLU, the Mormon, Mormon live, universe. live Universe. I feel I'm in the presence of the Avengers. Well, Look at that. You. I love it. This I tell is you Multiverse what. 616. Yeah, there you go. In, in this there one, in this one, Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real put together one hell of a show. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And I think every, everybody will see that all the kudos in this regard go to you, Lee. But Lee, can you tell us just in a, the barest minimum, because I know you've got a lot of material to cover tonight. Sure. Let's take three minutes, say, and tell us about yourself. Uh, I am uh, I'm the, the chair of communication at a university near Baltimore, Maryland. I, um, I have been a theater and entertainment historian uh, at the, the confluence of theater history and history of religions in North America, specializing in the 19th century for about the last 30 years. And it was about, it, it was at the beginning of my career that I discovered uh, genealogy. And through genealogy, I discovered that uh, there was a whole branch of my family that I had no idea of that has direct uh, connection to the restoration movements. I have three flavors of Mormonism in my, um, in my heritage. I have uh, a group that stayed in Far West after the main body moved to Nauvoo, and then a group that uh, went across the plains to Salt Lake City and founded Kuwila, and then a group that uh, objected to polygamy in Tooele and went all, all RLDS and went back to to Missouri and all three of those uh, are kind of combined in my family history and that got me thinking well maybe I should go to Nauvoo and check out and see what the, all of this is about because I was not born with any kind of um, Latter-day Saint sensibility at all. If, what if year would the, this have been when you went to Nauvoo Lee? 1993, March of 93. 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly. On the 140th anniversary of the receipt of Section 132. Yes, yes. Somewhere somewhere around in there. And the. I'm terrible at that. Anyway, go ahead. The temple lot was just a grassy knoll. And I went and did all that. At that point, all of the genealogical records were kept on um, on CD-ROM, and you would put in a, a CD, and it would take you to the next level, and it would take it. It was a, it was a whole thing, but it was very advanced for the time, and um, I, I made some pretty interesting discoveries. I made the discovery that um, I had a, a second great-grandfather named Joseph Smith Lee, and that he, he was not named Joseph Smith Lee because his, his father admired Joseph Smith. He was named Joseph Smith Lee because his father knew Joseph Smith. They lived north of town in a place uh, now called Inspiration Point, but that's where the Lee farm was, and that's the family I was named after. And that kind of captured my attention. Um, so I, I, I went down to what they now call the Cultural Hall. Are you familiar with this building at all? Uh, there is a cultural hall in Nauvoo. There is a I have not been hall, to Nauvoo, hall in Nauvoo. So, no, I'm not. How about you, Bill? Well, I I have uh, been to Nauvoo at least once. I think twice. Okay. Well, on the on the second slide, we're going to see a picture of that um, of that hall, and um, I maybe we ought to just dive right in. Please, the floor is yours. Okay. Terrific. Uh, the first slide. Um, is a picture of a little device on the right there uh, that is called a planchette. 
It's uh, an automatic writing device that was very popular from the 1850s all the way through uh, the 1890s to 1900. And it was an automatic writing device. Uh, you put a person on one side of it and a person on the other side of it. There's little wheels. Put a piece of paper down on a, on a, on a table and you'd stick a pencil in the little hole. And the idea is that you sit there and wait for spiritual inspiration. Spiritualists were, um, were, became right out of the same atmosphere that the Latter-day Saints movement did in the burned over district in New York at about the same time. Um, and uh, the idea was that you would wait for the spirits to move the planchette. And a lot of times it was just um, gobbledygook and um, uh, just wavy lines. Uh, and then writing would if you were really attuned with the spirits on the other side of the veil, then writing would take place. Um, and it's it's where we get our uh, modern day parlor game Ouija board. Um, there are still spiritualists around, uh, not nearly in the numbers that there were in the 19th century. Uh, but uh, that's the, the, the whole idea of the title of the Ouija board baptisms um, harkens back to this device called the planchette can i break in for just a second because i have to assume full Absolutely. responsibility for the title of tonight's yes. show i did call yes. it the ouija board baptisms recognizing that this is actually a precursor to the ouija yes. board um but it just was the automatic writing instrument baptisms just didn't do it for me and planchette <laughs> no one would have understood what that was they planchette baptisms. About a weird form of bananas or something you know <laughs> It does sound like that, doesn't it? Uh, so um, uh, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. And what we have here is a picture of that building, the Cultural Hall uh, in 1993. Um, and I went into the building and there was this poster, poster that's on the left hand side there. And it says Masonic Hall, uh, April 24th, 1844, will be presented a grand moral entertainment. Notice that it does not say a play. It says mm. a grand moral entertainment. But notice that the building is called the Masonic Hall. And I was a little intrigued by this. I was also intrigued that uh, I saw some very familiar names from Latter-day Saint history in the cast of the play. Um, but the whole thing was directed by an actor I had never heard of, and his name was Thomas A. Line. And so I went to the good sisters who were there, um, the, the um, older missionaries who were uh, standing around and, and uh, waiting for questions, and I said, do you know, um, first of all, why, why does this say Masonic Hall? And they said, oh, it's the Cultural Hall. And I said, I know, I know, I know that's what it's called. That's what the sign says out front. But it, uh, why does the poster say in the Masonic Hall? And they said, well, it's the cultural hall. They're not and, saying it's uh, this hall down I, the street and we just put the poster up in here. No, no, it's it's the hall we were standing in. So this was the, the no, it, it's called the cultural hall. And I said, why does it say cultural or, or Masonic Hall on the poster? third time and they said well it's 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 the cultural hall it's it's not important so i i gave that up and then i wow. said who's this guy i actually was not guy? aware of that 
that the yeah. church has renamed the Masonic Hall, which figures prominently, as you know, in Nauvoo history. And they uh -huh. want to distance themselves from that moniker, that appellation, yes. and make it the cultural hall, which in Mormonism has a very specific uh, connotation. And that is cultural hall is it's basically the gym at yes. the local chapel. Don't, or state don't forget, it's also where the second class weddings happen. Oh, right. The second class oh, weddings. Do they? Yes. The, the, the weddings that aren't that don't quite rise to the level of the... Of the that's why Matthew Roberts comments, I wonder if there's a basketball court inside. Because that's what we expect when we hear as Mormons a cultural hall. But this is the Masonic hall. Okay. It's the it. Masonic, yes. It, and and, and I, I went on to discover um, that uh, the, the Masonic hall uh, was always the Masonic hall while uh, Joseph Smith was alive. The Masonic Hall was never called the Cultural Hall at any time up until the 1970s, at which time uh, the uh, uh, Nauvoo Restoration Incorporated was founded, and there was a conscious effort away from making it the Williamsburg of the Midwest, away from historiography and toward uh, proselytizing toward evangelism. When you say the Williamsburg of the Midwest, what mm -hmm. do you mean? Um, Williamsburg, Virginia was restored, uh, largely restored by archaeologists and is now a tourist attraction um, uh, run uh, by Colonial Williamsburg, but the National Park Service ran it for a while. And Nauvoo was actually in talk with the National Park Service to uh, to have it be that kind of attraction. As a matter of fact, the same archaeological team that restored Williamsburg was engaged by um, by the, uh, President, is it Spencer Kimball? Do I have that correct? Yes, back in the 70s. Right, back in the 70s, Spencer Kimball, um, whose ancestor had been Heber C. Kimball, whose house was one of the first, uh, was, was one of the houses that were still extant, uh, along with the first two... Um, two stories of the cultural hall here, excuse me, the Masonic hall. Um, but uh, there, there was a lot of renaming that went on. And, and one of the renamings was that the Masonic hall uh, was called the cultural hall. And uh, so, so that there wouldn't be any unnecessary confusion. There. Well, maybe it's only fair since they were sort of renaming a play as a grand moral entertainment. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, was a, that was a conscious choice and a strategic public relations move on the part of Thomas A. Line. And let's go ahead and meet him in the next slide. This is what I discovered. I discovered Thomas A. Line of the Eastern Theaters, notice. It's very important for us to understand as we go through the material that we're about to be discussing what the social status of the theater was in the 1840s. Theater was not something that any self-respecting religious person attended. It was a little bit like going to a strip club. Was it legal? Sure, it was legal. You could do it, but it wasn't anything that you were going to advertise to your neighbors. And the remarkable thing about the Mormons of Nauvoo and under Joseph Smith's leadership is that Joseph Smith actually sanctioned that. As a matter of fact, 
the Latter-day Saints are the earliest English-speaking religious group to sanction theatrical activity as something that you could do and still remain a faithful communicant of that faith. It's 40 years before any other faith tradition did it. It sounds and sort of advanced. It's, it's, it's extremely advanced. Um, what had happened was that Line um, had been, uh, Line was the brother-in-law of, uh, of somebody in, uh, kind of on the B list of Mormon officials in Nauvoo named George Jones Adams. He had married, uh, the, Adams had been an actor before his conversion. He in turn was trying to convert Line. Line had married his sister Mercy Adams in New York. And um, Line had a, a, a near-death experience. He was in Florida. Uh, he, uh, his um, uh, troop, his traveling troop, was attacked by a band of Seminoles. A lot, he saw a lot of people murdered in front of him. He hid out all night. Um, and the next day, the troop actually went into St. Augustine, Florida, and they actually performed. Uh, and the play they performed was um oh now i'm losing it the scene a scene of the play that they performed the next night uh was an ambush scene and he he played a character who actually said murder murder you know i'm 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 being murdered uh in this ambush scene and um it was uh, an extremely moving experience for everybody there uh he went back to new york extremely shaken and um, he was uh, he was looked up by his brother-in-law, who who uh, I think the conversation I imagine the conversation went something like, uh, "Well, you almost met your maker, don't you think you ought to be in shape to meet your maker?" And so Line got very interested in Mormons and Mormonism, and decided that he was going to go to Nauvoo uh, and meet Joseph Smith. Uh, right, very Lee long. Lee, yes. so you can know from the Mormon perspective or the LDS perspective, what we would say is that God was preparing Thomas yes. Line to hear the gospel message. That's exactly the way. That's exactly the way he saw it at the time. Uh, he would kind of sour on that direction as time went by, uh, but it, it it was something that he was thinking about at the time. So he he it actually took him almost two years to get to Nauvoo. Uh, it was the spring of 1843. He wrote a letter to Joseph Smith uh, asking for permission for his troop to perform in Nauvoo. And it, in, in a letter of April 1st, 1843, um, misaddressed to the wrong person, um, he, uh, Line had signed the letter Line and Powell. And um, Smith wrote back to Lyman Powell. Because he knew people named Lyman, first name, last name, um, and uh, I'm I'm unsure as to whether that letter ever got to Thomas A. Line, but he did respond and said, "Yeah, sure, come on down, just as long as it's a moral entertainment." So this was a calculated thing for Line. He went back to New York, told his wife, "We're going, we're going to become Mormons. We're going to Nauvoo, and we're going to take it over theatrical, theatrically." And she said, "Not on your life, I'm not." And uh, he returned to Nauvoo, and the first thing he did to, in Illinois was to divorce her. 
and start courting somebody who was the daughter of an official there. Uh, if we can go to the next slide. Let's take a look at who is in this cast of this play. On April 24th, this one performance was to raise money for Joseph Smith's defense fund. Lee, have you mentioned the name of the play yet? The, the, the play is called Pizarro. Um, it was about oh, Pizarro, or the, there were a lot of dependent clauses in play names in the 19th century, uh, or the death of Rolla. Rolla was the Incan priest who was slain by Pizarro, and of course Pizarro and all of the conquistadors were were in in turn slain. Um, but it is a heroic story about the priest Rolla who stands up against the big bad Incans, and uh, it was the most popular play. By the way, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That yes. the high priest Rolla stood up against the big bad Spaniards, the conquistadors. Big bad Spaniards, yes. Okay, you had said Incans, and I wanted to be clear. I beg your pardon. Thank you very much. No, it was the Incans that were standing up against against the, the conquistadors. And Line knew, first of all, he knew that everyone in America was aware of this play. They might not go to the theater, but they're aware of the play as literature because it had been translated from the German by William Brinsley Sheridan. Everybody knew about this play. Just as sure as you knew about Shakespeare, you knew about Pizarro. And... Uh, they, he also knew that the Latter-day Saints community in general, and Joseph Smith in particular, would take it as an inspirational play to stand up against the wider community that was embattling them. So it was very particularly chosen. Let's look at the cast. First name on the list is Mr. J. Hatch. That's the great-great-grandfather of Orrin Hatch the late senator from Utah. Um, Line plays Rolla. Um, let's see who, who plays uh, Alonzo. Uh, Erastus Snow. These may be familiar names uh, to folks who know about Mormon history. Lorenzo's brother. That, yes, Lorenzo's brother. Um, uh, G.A. Smith. Um, we're not talking about uh, the guitarists for the Saturday Night Live band here. We're talking about George A. Smith, cousin to the prophet and uh, redactor of his journals later on. Um, let's see, who else do we have? Oh, yes, the high priest. You see who the high priest is? B. Young. It's Brigham Young. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Brigham Young was in a play directed by Thomas A. Line. It was a non-speaking role, but he did play the high priest. Uh, one of the running jokes, in the history of theater among the Latter-day Saints is that Line at the end of his life uh, around 18, 1889, 1890 was being interviewed by a man named John Lindsay and John Lindsay um, uh, uh, records that Line broke into a humorous vein and he said, you know, I've always, I've always regretted casting Brigham Young as the high priest. And Lindsay said, well, why is that? And he said, well, John, he's been playing the part ever since. <laughs> and uh, that, that's, in a, that's in a book called The Mormons and the Theater or the History of Theatricals in Utah. Uh, it's, by, um, it's by John Lindsay. It was published in 1905, and it is available uh, in the public domain. Um, so uh, you, you, you go down uh, to the Spaniards. It, it's a smaller type. I'm getting closer to the, to the screen here. George J. Adams, 
uh, let's see anybody else. Oh yes, Amasa Lyman is the is the um, third to the last person uh, at the bottom. He is um, uh, the the man who actually baptized Thomas A. Line. He'll become uh, very important toward the end of our discussion today. And at the bottom, playing Alvira, Mrs. Young, Brigham Young's wife. Which one? I also, um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> By the I way, I think there's also, is that Heber C. Kimball who's in there? It just says yeah. Kimball. Um, oh, yes, yes. Uh, thank you very much. Heber C. Kimball has a, has a role as a Spaniard. And um, as these plays progressed, there wasn't just this one. There were, there were another, there were, there were all in all, there were seven or eight plays that were put on by this little amateur troupe that was organized by Thomas A. Line. Um, and there were actors who dropped out because they were nervous, they were embarrassed. And who was drafted by Line to play one of the parts in one of the plays in, in uh, Therese or The Orphan of Geneva, but Helen Mar Kimball? The ingenue. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. Yeah. The ingenue, who at the time was 15 years old and was also secretly one of the plural wives of Joseph Smith. Mm. So we have an all-star cast here from a Latter-day Saint perspective. Uh, let's go to the next slide, please. Okay, now, why don't we know about Thomas A. Line? Why didn't the people in, in the Masonic Hall slash Cultural Hall know anything about Thomas A. Line? Why was it that until um, until 2019, uh, the only thing that was on the Latter-day Saints website about Thomas A. Line was little is known of him before 1862, which has never been, never ever been true. Um, Why is we, that? Especially since at a minimum they've got a poster with his name on it on the inside yes. of the Masonic Hall in Nauvoo. Yeah, it's because no one was motivated to do the work, um, except for me, who I, obviously I had much too much time on my hands over the last 30 years. Uh, but I've dug up where he was from his birth um, all month to month, almost week to week, sometimes day by day. Uh, and I've traced everywhere he went. And the only thing that I can surmise is that the reason that no one to this point has examined or published anything about Thomas A. Line. And I might add, this includes scholars of theater history um, working in LDS-sponsored institutions. Zero. Nothing. Um, there's a, there was a little bit done by uh, a couple of scholar friends of mine who were kind enough to share their research with me. But other than that, nothing. And the only thing that I can surmise is that in the succession crisis in summer of 1844, uh, we know who won that crisis, but Line did not back Brigham Young. He backed Sidney Rigdon. Ooh, bad call. Bad call. Back the wrong horse. On the lame let's horse, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go, to the, let's go to the next slide because it'll become kind of apparent what happened and why it happened. Uh, oh, a couple, um, couple of conclusions. First of all, Thomas A. Line, not Joseph Smith, that is the myth, that Joseph Smith had the idea to, to uh, form a theater company, and he called Thomas A. Line from the East and had him uh, organize the company. Uh, it's not at all true. 
Smith had no idea who Lyne was before 1843. Um, and when he arrived, he, when he came back in 1844, um, that's when all of this happened. Uh, next slide, please. And number two, Lyne's theatrical direction and elocutionary instruction of these church officials in 1844 influenced their execution of the temple endowment ritual conducted in the Nauvoo Temple in the winter of 1845 and 46. Now that's something that I think will interest our audience mm -hmm. if they haven't been interested up till now. <laughs> yeah, it does seem only, it does seem know. interesting, right? That mm -hmm. um, that you have the leaders of the church getting involved in this theatrical production and the endowment, especially the live uh, presentation as early in history, was very yes. much uh, a theatrical sort of thing, even to the point where those of us who have gone through a live session in the modern age don't recognize things such as was it was it Willard Richards who dressed who, who slithered on the floor like a snake, like a snake, uh, yes, yeah. So there are all these things from the original endowment that were much more theatrical than what we see today in the video presentation or the slide presentation as they do. Yeah, the only yes, thing that it, makes that easier is being anointed head to toe with oil yeah. and water oh the, oh, the, the slithering twice. absolutely yeah. um the uh if, if anyone wants to uh examine this in further detail the only thing you need to do is to find uh william clayton's journals and heber c Kim kimball's journals and they record sometimes night to night what happened in the temple and who assumed what role? Mm. Let's go to the next slide and, and we'll see a little bit more about that. Okay, so uh, this is a slide that is meant to uh, reveal a few things. Uh, the, 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 uh, the silhouette of Moroni um, uh, is a senior LDS leadership role. Uh, the theatrical masks, uh, that marks a member of Lyons Company of Performers in 1844. Uh, the E means that they were endowed in the Nauvoo Temple in 1845 and 46, and uh, the um, uh, the little temple um, symbol there, a dramatic role in the Nauvoo Temple endowment ritual, subsequent to their own endowment, uh, endowment, not endowment. Uh, lines, theatrical and elocutionary instruction, to my way of thinking, has to have played a role and this is the reason why none of these men not Hiram Clausen not Brigham Young not Amos Lyman not George A Smith not Heber C Kimball not Erastus Snow none of them would have in their wildest nightmares taken part in a theatrical production before 1844 before they got to Nauvoo, the social risk just would have been way too great. These were not people who were trained actors. And we need to understand what the theater was in the 19th century. The theater in the 19th century was done by professionals who decided that they were going to ruin their lives and go on the stage because they would have been employable for absolutely nothing else once people found out that they were actors. And here they were doing it because they were raising money for Joseph Smith. 
as a matter of fact, Line wanted to take all of these men as a company and tour up and down the Mississippi. He did tour up and down the Mississippi, but all of these guys, except for Hiram Clausen, who was a 17-year-old boy, all of these guys refused to go. No, we will not be actors in public. But they were trained by line. Who who was training them how to stand, how to project, how to claim space, how to do how to block out the play? He wasn't there. He was long gone. He he after the assassination, he left for New York and he never returned. And there you but, of course mean the assassination of Joseph Smith in June I, of I mean, yes, I yes, I mean the murder of Joseph Smith in By the way, Lee, what was yeah. it? I mean, you said that the they're raising money. Thomas Lyon's idea is to use this performance of Pizzato to raise yes. money. And what was the purpose for that money that was raised? It was for his defense fund. It's on the poster, actually. For Joseph uh, Smith's says defense to, fund. Yes, yes, for to to raise um, to raise funds in defense of Joseph Smith and his persecutions in Missouri. All of that. All of that stuff going on in, in Missouri with them trying to kidnap him and extradite him to Missouri and him evading them and hiding and uh, everything that was going on in the spring of 1844, uh, that took money to pay the lawyers. And he was trying to raise it. I feel like yeah, Thomas Lyon really made an offer to Joseph Smith that he couldn't refuse. It's a moral entertainment. We're going to cast this as you guys being the the Incans standing up against these conquistadors who are coming yes. in to subjugate you and destroy you, and yes. you get all the money. Exactly. Why do you come to me on the day of my daughter's debut at the theater? Basically. <laughs> <laughs> you have a masculine child. <laughs> Just hey, Bill, FYI, do you do that one too? Just FYI, Hiram Clausen, yes. you've got the... You, you've left off the mark that says he was not in a senior LDS leadership role. That's 100% true. But just so that people in the audience recognize that he actually was in the inner circle, he was Brigham Young's business manager for much and of Brigham Young's time as leadership in the church. So while he wasn't in the senior leadership of the church, he was Brigham Young's right-hand man handling his business ventures. And eventually his son-in-law, and eventually the man who ran the Salt Lake Theater. And we're going to get to that in just a couple of slides here. Let's By the way, on. Lee, can I describe this for anybody who's listening to this only on audio? Because this will be put up just in audio. So we've oh, got yes. all these individuals. We've got Brigham Young. You mentioned Hiram Clausen. But Brigham Young, Amasa Lyman, George A. Smith, Heber C. Kimball, Erastus Snow, and they all have the following in common. That they were all senior LDS leaders. leaders that they were all members of Lyon's company of performers in 1844 to put on the play that they had all been endowed in the Nauvoo Temple in 1845, I think you said, or 46, yes. and that they all had a dramatic role in the Nauvoo Temple endowment ritual subsequent to their own endowment. Yes, all of that is true. Where okay, do we go from here? Uh, I, I'll, I'll show you. Next slide, please. Basically, uh, these next two slides, you can go to the, the one after this, too. Uh, this is... This is just uh, uh, to reinforce the fact that Line's troop in May of 1844 uh, lent almost all of the people to the endowment ritual who staged the play that's at the at the center of this ritual. 
And I'm not suggesting that, um, I'm not even suggesting that Line even knew about the endowment or what it was or what it consisted of or that there was a play in it. Um, but unbeknownst to him, uh, he, he trained the guys. And so indirectly, he had, he had an effect on the, uh, on the central ritual in the, the homegrown religion of the Latter-day Saints. It's unique is, in American history. It's amazing, and it's great that you found this out. We do have a question that's come up a couple of times. Lee, do you yes. have an exact date that that play was performed? April 24th, 1844. Thank and you. you can find this poster online. Um, uh, if, if, you, if you Google um, Nauvoo Grand Moral Entertainment or, or, or something along those lines, um, you, can, you can also find it in uh, the article uh, that's in the resources link um, for, for this uh, live stream as well. Because you have published in the John Whitmer Association yes. Journal, haven't you? Yeah. Yes, I have. Okay. Just want to put that out there so people will know that uh, we can certainly pay attention to what you're saying. <laughs> it's very kind of you. Thank you. You bet. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. 1862, Brigham Young has a theater built. And uh, I think we need one more click there, Bill. And this is a chart of relationships of Thomas A. Line to all of these people. You will notice that uh, there's a direct line from Line to Clausen and Brigham Young. Uh, as I mentioned before, Hiram Clausen was not only Brigham Young's business manager, uh, but he was also the manager of the Salt Lake Theater due almost entirely to his having been in the Nauvoo Productions. And then when he got to... Uh, when 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 he arrived in Utah, he was one of the one of the prime movers of the Deseret Dramatic Association. And when the theater was built in 1862, uh, he became the manager of that. And uh, that's where the connection between Line and Clausen becomes very interesting. Uh, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So. In 1862, Lyne was married to a woman named Carrie Cogswell. So there's Lyne and Carrie Lyne there. And um, uh, things got a little dicey between the two um, because um, one, of the, one of the little boys who had grown up in Nauvoo was the son of Jared W. Carter Sr., uh, who is reputed to have been one of the founders of the Danites. Um, and uh, he, he, he lived quite close to Line while Line was living in Nauvoo. Um, but when Carrie, and, um, when Carrie and Tom came to Denver, uh, where Jared Carter was performing, they were all in the same company. And lo and behold, I think we need a click here. Uh, lo and behold, Carrie um, becomes Carrie Carter. Carrie leaves Line for Carter. Um, and so Line writes a letter to Brigham Young because Line has heard that Hiram Clausen is the manager of the splendid, brand spanking new uh, theater at Salt Lake. And he says, um, a difficulty has arisen in my life. 
the difficulty, of course, being that his wife had left him for Jared Carter. And uh, I, if, you, if you can use uh, an instructor and a tragedian and an elocutionist, then I'm your guy. And Brigham Young, apparently either never being aware that Line was a Strangite, Line, Line had been, been uh, excuse me, a Rigdonite and then a Strangite, um, apparently all that was forgiven and Clausen hired him to go to Salt Lake City. Next slide, please. We're getting to the plants yet, I promise you. Uh, that's that's line in Salt Lake City playing Rolla in Pizarro. When you were an actor in the 19th century, you played your greatest hits over and over and over again. Next slide, please. Okay, here's the neighborhood in Nauvoo. The star up in the left-hand corner is a building that still exists as a private residence in historic Nauvoo. It's called, it was at the time called the City Hotel. Um, across the street is the Sidney Rigdon residence, also the post office in Nauvoo. If you've been to Nauvoo, you've seen this stuff. And then the mansion house is the Smith residence. And Ooh, so he froze for a second. <clears throat> and there, you'll notice this route. Line, line, was, um, line was courting a woman named Marianne Harlan Hess. And every time he went to visit her, uh, it, it just so happens that when he walked from his hotel to go a courting down at the Peter Hess house, he would pass Rigdon's house, Smith's house, and the Carter house. Also living in the Carter house was Jared W. Carter Jr. Guess who Carrie Line left Tom Line for in Denver 18 years later? Uh, Jared Carter Jr. Jared Carter Jr. That's so there was quite an age difference between Line and Carrie, correct? There was. Yeah, so there maybe was. He, he was, he was he 20 was, years older than she? He was 25 years older than she was. And uh, Jared W. Carter Jr. was four years younger, although she always told him that he was a year older. I just want to That's, point out that Joseph Smith has a lot bigger house than Sidney Rigdon. It's very true. Okay. So even even still, even with the back section being uh, no longer existing there. Yeah. So next slide, because we're going to go very rapidly. Um, this is another another view of it from Google Maps. Um, Marianne Harlan Hess has a little brother named Cortland Van Rensselaer, a CV Hess. Jared Carter Jr. and Cortland Hess grow up to be actors i'll let that sink in for a little bit no one in the 1830s grew up to be an actor in the 1860s just wasn't done here we have two little boys who live in the same neighborhood in nauvoo illinois with the the instigator of theater among the latter-day saints um i i think they i i think their parents took them to the plays yeah, you I think they got think, the theater bug from Thomas Line. I think Lyon? they got the bug from Thomas Line. I cannot prove that directly, uh, but I, 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 I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that that's that's likely. That circumstantial evidence is pretty strong. Let's go to the next slide. So, um, Carter and Hess lived one block from each other as six-year-old boys in Nauvoo, while Line was courting. 
Cortland's sister, Marianne, from April to June 1844. Let's skip two slides because I want to get to the, the meat of this. Both grew up to become actors. And April 15, 1865 was a personally significant day for both of them. For Jared Carter, his son was born on the day of the Lincoln assassination. And Cortland Van Rensselaer Hess, who was also an actor, was in Washington, D.C. in the company of Ford's Theater. Mm. You can go ahead and click through there. Here's some articles that I've highlighted that um, that have them in that place at that time. Mm. So just a little confluence. So it's, I forget, what was the name of the production at Ford's Theater that Our night? Our American Cousin with Laura Keene. Our American Cousin? Our American Cousin. Yes. C and so... CV Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. So CV or Cortland Van Hess was a member of that troupe that was putting that show on that night? He was a member of the resident company of Ford's Theater. Um, he was supposed to be in the play that night, but he, he developed, a, developed a cough, and he was actually oh, A likely in, story. He, well, he was in the foyer of the theater, ready oh. to do a song after the play when John Wilkes Booth passed him. Um, he testified about this in um, in the trial, and you can still find C.V. Hess uh, and and his name all the way through 1867 when they were still conducting the trial. Um, C.V.'s brother Lee, George. Lee, yes, go ahead. For, yes. for the one person, I mean, we actually do broadcast to different countries. I've got to yes. think that everybody who is uh, over here in the United States of America knows what you're talking about, but you haven't actually said it. Nobody has yet. What I happened that right. night? That's okay. I just want to make sure it's clear Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yes. <laughs> On April 15th, 1865, the actor John Wilkes Booth, who was the son of one of Lyne's closest friends, Junius Brutus Booth, greatest actor of his day, who had died in 1852. Um, John Wilkes Booth, who was a sympathizer of the Confederacy, um, slipped past all of the security in Ford's theater because he had been a member of the company on um, and he shot the president to death. Jumps out of the booth yelling six semper tyrannis, thus always with tyrants, breaks his leg, goes on the run, uh, is, is killed a couple of weeks later. But well, that, that by news, hanging, right? Uh, no, no, he was shot in a barn. Oh, okay. Um, he was he was trapped in a barn. They set the barn on fire. Somebody shot him. Um, and uh, but but his his confederate his confederates his uh, his partners in the conspiracy were hanged. And they were trying to kill other people connected to it as well, right? His his partners were on the same evening supposed to take the lives of other folks connected Secretary to Secretary of State Seward. They yep. came really close to killing Seward. Yeah. Um, and, um, and several other people. So, uh, so that, that's what was going on that evening. If we fast forward from, um, uh, well, that, that's what was going on in 1865. So what happens is that Tom line goes to Salt Lake theater, Harry Carter and her husband, Jared form a company called Carter's dramatic combination. Next slide, please. I think we need another click. Okay. 
yep, there's little there's little uh, a picture of little Lincoln. I'll start narrating the the the, the picture. Very as appropriately well. named, considering everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, mm. there's a there's a reason for that. Um, this the assassination hit the theatrical community like a bomb. There were a lot of people who were calling for the closure of all theaters and the abolishment of all theaters and the arrest of every actor in America as a traitor. And so when Lincoln was born on the same day, by gosh, they named him Lincoln. And uh, they, they made no bones about the fact that the son was named Lincoln. So when they started touring nationally, uh, Lincoln, of course, was with them. Next slide, please. Okay, so in 1871, Carter's dramatic combination finds itself in California. It's uh, Jared and Carrie and little Lincoln and, next slide please. Carter's dramatic combination shows up on June 13th, 1871 at the Salt Lake Hotel. Uh, disheveled, bedraggled, they, they look horrible. They're denied entrance into the hotel until Carter identifies himself as the son of Jared Carter Sr. and an acquaintance of Brigham Young. And what they tell uh, Brigham Young later on uh, is quite the story. Next slide, please. Um, they are invited to the Lion House, to Brigham Young's office. And um, at that point, they describe a journey that had been led by through the use of a planchette. And I think the planchette comes in up in the next click. Lee, while so we're doing this, this part, can I ask you, is Thomas Line still in Salt Lake City oh, when his ex-wife arrives? Mm -hmm. Okay, I just ever? wanted to ask that. Yeah, and that's uh, that, that's a fun little story in itself that would take an, another few hours to go through. Uh, but to just briefly, Thomas Line lived the last 30 years of his life in Salt Lake City. Uh, he outlived Brigham Young, with whom he had a running feud. He became a Godbeite. He became a spiritualist. But when the Carters came to town, uh, he and Carrie Carter had two children in common, and Line had them enrolled in school in Salt Lake City. And when they came through Salt Lake, uh, they took their son, Walter, with him. And Line, um, Line was very publicly walking up and down the streets of Salt Lake City saying, saying they've stolen my children. Uh, it was not an amicable co-parenting relationship. <laughs> so they went down and toured through California and in Elko, Nevada, something happens next slide please now lee i interrupted you so i apologize yes. this is the the story okay. now that this bedraggled group uh yes. are telling to brigham young after they arrive in salt lake city in 1871 right and the story that they told brigham was the following that a planchette through automatic writing had instructed them not to take a steamer back to San Francisco the way they came and go overland on the rail to Salt Lake City, um, but that the spirit guides that were manipulating the planchette had told them to buy wagons and walk 
from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City to be baptized by him. By Brigham Young? By Brigham Young. That's what they said. Um, and apparently, well, the, the legend is, and the legend's very, by, by the way, the legend's very difficult to find. Um, it, took, it took me the better part of 15 years to put all of these pieces together. But this is what the legend is, that they did that and that Brigham Young baptized them and put them on stage, engaged them as actors immediately. And we have to remember also in 1871, um, there had been a tradition that only baptized Mormons could be on that stage. In 1871, that had been broken a bit, but it was still something that Brigham was trying to revive. So he baptized uh, at least, he baptized four of them. He baptized Jared and Carrie and Carrie's brother, Bill, whom we're about to meet, and another actor named E.B. Martin. And I think we'll see that in the next slide, please. Okay, yep, Carter's Dramatic uh, Combination, June 22nd, 1871, the first appearance at the theater of Carrie Carter, E.B. Martin, and Jared Carter this evening, the female gambler. Also, Humpty Dumpty. Um, you gotta know when to hold him. You got <laughs> Well, that's part of the problem here. Um, there's somebody somebody here who didn't quite know when to fold him. Yes. And uh, we're about to meet him. And his name is Bill Cogswell. Next slide, please. Did this actually happen? Well, yes, mostly. More of it happened than I initially thought. I because there's this there's this article. Um there's this affidavit that was sworn out by Bill Cogswell that describes the whole thing in rather interesting detail. Um, and by his account, they were walking into the desert without any, any preparation at all. Um, the spirit guides had said, do not take any weapons with you. Um, just take food and water, enough for the horses, and we will provide. Because so it is the, a religious quest, almost a religious it pilgrimage. Is, it, oh, it is! It's absolutely a religious pilgrimage. By by the sensibilities of, I'm just going to say Jared and Carrie, because I have my doubts about the others, and I'm I'm about to tell you why. Um, but uh, this is a map of um, of a road from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City. It still exists. And it, in fact, it existed, it had existed since 1849. It was part of the old Spanish trail, sometimes referred to as the old Mormon Salt Lake Road mm -hmm. that had been in use since the 1850s. And it runs right past Mountain Meadows, um, where a massacre occurred that uh, a, a lot of uh, listeners to this program, viewers of this program, will be familiar with. Um, let's go to the next slide. And just FYI, you know, I live here in Southern yes. Utah. Mountain oh. Meadows massacre happened just uh, just a short little bit from where I'm at. So yeah. So this this road runs right by you, Bill. Wow. I want to introduce you Can to we... WJ. Yes. Let's just we do have people in the chat that are new to Mormonism, and they might not know what Mountain Meadows massacre is. Okay. Um. Give a I, 
Bill, Bill, you can probably, or uh, Bill um, or RFM, you could probably synopsize the mountain. RFM might better do this better. <clears throat> yep. Mormons okay. killed a bunch of white settlers. Yeah, they blamed the settlers as having been connected to the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. They blamed the Native Americans for having carried it out. <clears throat> Brigham, Brigham Young lied years later, even after he knew how it had happened, that it was still the Native Americans who had done it. And they massacred him. I mean, they shot the men right in the head, essentially, and then walked up to the women and children and killed them too. And and then took the young children who couldn't, who were too young to maybe remember it exactly, mm-hmm. took them back to Southern Utah, and gave them to Mormon parents. So the so the Mormons raised the victims' kids that they had massacred and took their clothes. Took a piano. I just saw yesterday there was a expensive piano taken. Don't forget uh, the cows, wow. baby. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and the cows. It was horrific. Yeah. Those cows were important. Yeah. And they had a lot of them. Yeah. So Okay, so that's what happened there. But this is 1871. Quite, that was 1871. So this right. is 14 years later. Right. Uh, but the, the the point there was that it's it's an historic trail, and it's been known for – it at, in eight, by 1871, it had been known for many, many years, over 30 years. Um, so this is Bill Cogswell. Bill, Bill Cogswell was Carrie's brother. Um, he was um, he, he was quite the dandy. This is his fanciest role, his most successful role as the Marquis de Pre in uh, a play called The Two Orphans. Four years after the events of 1871, uh, he was on Broadway in this play with the most success that he enjoyed in his life. Hmm. And uh, so he was a prominent... A fellow, also a member, by the way, uh, of the uh, Ford's Theater Company, um, right before the the Lincoln assassination. He wasn't there on that night. He was with Jared and Carrie when Lincoln was born up in Rochester and appearing at the theater there. Mm. Just a little fun fact to know and tell. It looks like um, he's starring in The Dancing Cavalier. Uh, doesn't it? Um, yes, and he's, he's quite the dandy. He's also not a bad-looking guy for 1871. Uh, no offense to 1871. Compared uh, to me, he's he could, not a bad-looking guy for 2023. So yeah, he's 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 uh, he could clean up real nice, and and apparently he did. Um, so let's go to the next slide. Okay, here. So we have Bill Cogswell in this slide in in that role uh, of photograph. We have a photograph of uh, the young boy Lincoln J. Carter, and next click. Okay, now we have Cogswell's affidavit. September 24th, 1900, Bill decides to write all this down in an affidavit. Um, and uh, there, there's, there, there are problems with this document. All of the adults who had taken part in this, in this journey were dead, except uh, for one that he didn't know about, uh, that he had, he had lost contact with that we'll meet in a minute. Um, but Lincoln Carter, his son, who had become the most famous theatrical producer in America, he was the, the, the richest theatrical producer before silent film came through and swept all of melodrama away. Um, but he was quite the prominent guy on Broadway. Um, Lincoln remembered as a six-year-old what this what what had happened here and corroborated a lot of it but there's a lot that 
um, Bill says about it uh, that can be synopsized in the following, following way. If you can do a click here. The affidavit is called, Was Brigham Young a Spiritualist? Remember, Brigham Young's been dead at this time uh, for 23 years. Um, but what Cogswell says is that it was organized in Chicago, um, that in 1871, in February of 1871, they had stopped at, uh, at a railway station in Elko, Nevada, and he had discovered a planchette. Now, at this time, in 1871, everyone in America knows what a planchette is. Lots of people play with it. Um, some spiritualists think that it's real. A lot of people think that it's satanically inspired. A lot of people still do. Um, but that um, he started, they started getting messages from spirit guides. And spirit guides started to tell them, they're in Los Angeles at this point, uh, starts to tell them uh, to travel overland from L.A. to Salt Lake City and be baptized by Brigham Young. And then they meet a guide, um, you know, seemingly serendipitously. And then they travel through the desert. They arrive in Salt Lake City and they're baptized by Young and they're engaged at the Salt Lake Theater. Um, a key person in this whole scenario is the actor E.B. Marden, Edward B. Marden. Uh, we don't know much about him. I've discovered his birth and death dates, and I've discovered that, uh, like um, like Cogswell, uh, he he was a, a, a bit of a rogue, um, and he was a bit of a storyteller. And in fact, as it turns out, um, Marden and Cogswell uh, were quite close associates. And it's important to remember that and remember that not everybody knew that at the time that all of this was taking place. Let's go to the next slide. Lee, can I ask you a question while you're yes, sir. gearing up for this? Why an affidavit? Generally, an affidavit is something that one does when one's like in court or doing something formal. It's attested. Right. Why not just writing it out as a story? It was his impression that if he had an affidavit, and he had done this earlier in his life, he had sworn out affidavits about a lot of things, particularly things that happened while he was in Salt Lake City and still acquainted with Brigham Young. Um, and almost all of the pertinent facts that he was trying to prove with his affidavits were false. But let's remember that these, this was, these were the 1870s, 1880s. Um, unless a document was sent physically to someone under seal, there was no way of, um, of corroborating that it was genuine. And so he could wander around with this typescript of this affidavit. This was 1900, so that it was a typescript. Um, and um, say, oh, look, here it is. Here's an affidavit. Uh, this is what proves it. Uh, that's what he was trying to do, was trying to prove his veracity. Hmm. And methinks he doth protest too much. It's like I'm really, um, really telling you the truth about this. I'm really, 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 really telling you the truth. I mean it. I mean it sincerely. Um, there's something about the guide that they meet um, that's, that tells us something about 
whether or not these were spiritual activities. These were spirit guides that were talking to them. Uh, for one thing, um, Jared Harder Jr. was the first cousin of the guide, Gideon Hayden Carter Jr., he, who was the son of one of the Far West martyrs. Uh, that family had moved to Texas, and lo and behold, the Gideon Carters were spiritualists. There's a specific important reason that they were spiritualists, meaning people who believed that you could use a planchette to contact the dead. It was because um, Gideon was married to someone, well, let's see, how did this go? One of Gideon's brothers was married to one of Amasa Lyman, Lyman's daughters. Amasa Lyman had been sent from Salt Lake City to found the colony in San Bernardino. And in 1853, Amasa Lyman began dabbling in spiritualism. So the whole broader family of the Lymans, at least those who lived in San Bernardino, and the Carters, at least those who lived in San Bernardino, were believers in spiritual phenomena. So what happened was that the Carter cousins got together. Gideon said, oh, you're using a planchette. The planchette is telling you to do these things and to go to Salt Lake City. I'll take you there. And the guide appears. I'll, I'll take you there. And the guide appears. <laughs> so ju just like the stable singers, he took them there. Uh, next slide, please. So the appearance of the guide is not so miraculous. It is not miraculous in the least, but it's miraculous in the affidavit. Ah. And in fact, the affidavit um, goes on and on about how helpful he was and how, uh, you know, and, and the spirit guides had led them to him. Well, um, so that, that's, that's where they're living. Uh, this, this, this chart um, shows uh, the route of the trek. And there's a particular part of the chart that I want to take a closer look at. Because if, as you see, the road runs from Los Angeles up through the desert past Las Vegas Rancho, um, not nearly as big as it is now, um, past St. George, past Mountain Meadows, past Cove Fort, goes through York, and eventually to Salt Lake City. But that's not exactly the route that they took. Next slide, please. Um, Gideon was an experienced guide. He knew that the shortest distance to Salt Lake City was to follow the main road. But in fact, they diverted from the main road for about 152 miles to go to Kiyosh, Nevada. The affidavit talks about Kiyosh an awful lot. The affidavit said, thought we were near Kiyosh. And then um, a couple of paragraphs later, we had, we had just passed Kiyosh and we were camping about three days journey from Pioche. And what was so special about Pioche, Nevada? A Pioche, by the way, is one of those mining picks. It was a mining town. That's what a Pioche is. So it, it was a mining boom town. Next slide, please. 
why were they there? Well, they were there because of this article. They were playing in the towns. They were performing in the towns all the way through this trip, which means that it wasn't by spiritual inspiration at all. This was a trip that they had already planned. Because, number one, it wouldn't be unusual for a dramatic company to be playing cities along the way that they're going, but apparently right. that is very different from the way it's portrayed in the affidavit. In the affidavit, they are, they are setting off on Salt Lake Road for one reason and one reason only. They want to get to Brigham Young and be baptized as soon as possible. There is nothing at all in the affidavit about them doing anything theatrical after Los Angeles. And number two, you don't just show up in a town and say, hey, we're here. We're going to, you want to put on a show? You want to come to a show? There's a lot of planning and advance work that has to be done, correct? Planning, advance work, and permission. As a matter of fact, there was, there was one member of the company who was called the advanced man. And the advanced man's job was to travel to the place that they were going to play, get all the permissions, pay any fees that were due, and to, quote, bill the town, end quote, um, to, to put playbills so that people knew to show up at the performances. Sure. No one just showed up and played. So this was a premeditated thing. Next slide, please. So um, the last thing that I want to say about the, the planchette journey, as it was, um, as the legend was, was so-called, I do believe that uh, Carrie Carter and Jared Carter really did believe that they were being spoken to by spirits. Um, but what the affidavit says is that the first people who tried to get something out of the planchette, just playing around in their idle hours between performances, were Bill Cogswell and his sister, Carrie, and that it would do nothing. And then Bill has a bright idea. He says, Carrie, he says, um, I'm going to go get Ed Martin. Let me go get Mr. Martin, and let's see if he can make it work. And lo and behold... Next slide, please. These are just pictures of these folks. Uh, Why is this starting to sound like the story of the three witnesses? <laughs> you might have to explain that to our... Uh, our. Uh, now they can look it up. On, Go, ahead. On more. Go ahead. Oh, they can look it up. All right. All right. Okay. So um, what happens is that Ed Martin sits down across the table from Carrie, and all of a sudden it starts to write. And Carrie says... I'm not doing this. And so does Ed. Ed says, I'm not doing it. Well, um, as it happens, Cogswell and Martin were, as one account in 1892 puts it, quote, particular chumps, end quote. What does that mean? Well, uh, there, there are a variety of interpretations. Um, it is, it's been intimated to me that that is a Victorian code for a homosexual relationship. 
Um, I think the journey, uh, the, the, the jury is still out on, on that until I get more, more information about it. Um, but I think they were at least extremely close friends because everything that happened afterward and some awful, awful things happened afterward. Um, they, they, they end up being companions when they leave Salt Lake City in California and then when they go back into the 1880s in Chicago. So it's my belief that Marden and Cogswell, who were well-seasoned actors who had been all over North America and seen every kind of not only play but animal act, um, novelty act, illusionist act, including acts with things like planchettes and with, uh, with all kinds of mind tricks. It's my belief that Cogswell and Martin, in, when, when they were still in California, Northern California, and playing around with the planchette, um, they wanted to loosen Jared Carter up a little bit. He, he was a, a bit of a stuffy guy. And uh, they said, well, look, why don't we do this? Why don't we play this trick? with this planchette and we will tell Jared something that he can only interpret as having been spiritually inspired. Um, and so Bill tells the story of how Jared Carter came to believe that this was spiritual inspiration. He tells a story about um, uh, be, being in the mountains of Colorado and almost dying and, and there was a particular word and uh, and and the, the word was passed to him. Um, I I think that you know Carrie was Carrie was Jared's wife. Bill was Carrie's sister. It's hard for me to believe that he hadn't just mined some of the personal information that he knew about Jared and planted that in his mind. Jared becomes very convinced of this, and so they keep the ruse up. Um, but then they get to Los Angeles, and what they realize is they can't stop. They can't stop this. They can't. Con he, Jared, starts to become extremely devout in his thinking, and and thinking we need to go see Brigham Young, and we need to be. This is a real sign from the heavens. Because he was a and kid they, in Nauvoo, right? He's a Mormon. He, he was a kid in Nauvoo. He had known Joseph. He had known Joseph Smith. He had known Brigham Young. He had been on speaking terms with Brigham Young. His father is. His father lived three doors down from from Joseph Smith. Um, and the 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 thing about this whole scenario is it ultimately it's tragic because it not only puts all of them in peril, um, but once they get to Salt Lake City, eventually, and I, I'm, um, I'll, I'll have to tell this story another time, um, but eventually it ends up uh, destroying the marriage of, of the Carters because Jared Carter becomes convinced that he can't be an actor and be a devout Mormon. And one of his spiritualist friends in DeKalb writes him and says, I understand that you're having spiritualist experiences. This is what Joseph Smith has said to me through the planchette. 
And it is that uh, Brigham Young is completely wrong. And um, he's hired you to be an actor here. Uh, but uh, not only is Joseph Smith telling you through me via the planchette uh, that uh, Brigham Young is wrong. Um, now, m mind you, Brigham Young is now their sponsor. He, is, he has hired them to be the resident Mormon company at the Salt Lake Theater. Lee, is Brigham Young wrong just generally, or is he wrong specifically about something like his opposition to spiritualism? Uh, pol opposition to spiritualism and polygamy. And his practice of polygamy. And his practice of polygamy and his, and his, his institutionalization of polygamy. Um, so uh, what happens is that Jared leaves the stage and Carrie says, I'm not leaving. You've got to be kidding me. We're not leaving the stage, and Jared says, "The spirits have told me that we have that I have to leave the stage and become a Mormon missionary." And she says, "I'm not leaving." And the 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 it becomes so contentious that Brigham Young has to broker a divorce between them. Jared chooses a new wife, and Brigham marries Carrie to Bishop Lester Herrick of Ogden oh. to be his fourth polygamous wife. Okay, he doesn't marry her himself. He, he does not marry, no. He, he performs the ceremony. He marries her to a bishop. And that sends Bill Coxwell... Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If she's getting married to a bishop, that would presume that yeah. she is Mormon. Um, yes, uh, nominally. I think they brokered a deal. This is what I think. I think what happened was that she said, okay, um, I will stay on the stage. I, 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 will, I will agree to this. I will agree to release Jared as my husband. Uh, I will not live as a plural wife um, with, with Jared. But if you find me an old enough man um, for whom I only need to be a celestial wife um, and set me up with an apartment here in Salt Lake City, um, I'll, I'll go for that. And if I can still make a living as an actress and that's apparently what happens. Mm. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental. Uh, but Brigham is a girl's best friend. I'm guessing this Bishop was somewhat wealthy to be able to have this many wives. Uh, yes. Bishop Herrick was quite a wealthy guy. He was extremely prominent. He was, he was one of twins. Uh, there were twin bishops, Lester, and uh, I don't remember who the other guy's name was. Uh, but uh, eventually, that I've I've never found a, a divorce decree. Um, uh, but she went back. She lived as Carrie Herrick for a year. Went back to using Cogswell. In the meantime, uh, Jared marries a woman named Lydia. Has a whole second family, and then in 1874 he dies as a very, very young man. And uh, Harry uh, eventually drifts away from Salt Lake City in the 1880s, much to Tom Lyne's delight. Um, Bill Cogswell, um, well, Bill Cogswell is a whole nother deal and, and could take another couple of hours to talk about him. We'll have to talk about him uh, at a later time. So is at, Carrie, at any rate, oh, go ahead. Is, does Carrie Carter playing in starring yeah. roles in the Salt Lake Theater while Thomas Lyne, her former husband, 
that she left for Jared Carter is managing yes. it? No. Uh, in 1865, Tom Line uh, goes to Brigham Young and says, I would really like to build a theater um, uh, that is not under your control, uh, but you're, you manage everything in the city. And Brigham says no. And, and Line says, but I really want to. And Brigham says no. And so Line eventually joins the Godby, uh, Godbyites to oppose Brigham Young's authority. And through the Godbyites, he becomes a spiritualist, ironically enough. Um, it's important to note that once they got to Salt Lake City, the messages from the planchette stopped dead. It never told them another thing again, even though they tried. Well, they arrived. They, were, they had arrived. So I have and, a question for you. Before I want you to yes. complete your story as much as you want. Uh, but I understand that you had a question. We're, we're at a good stopping. Yeah. Okay. That you had a question in your mind because here's Brigham Young, who is openly anti-spiritualist movement. Yes. And he gives discourses about it. It's very clear his position. And yet here come these people from, oh, Los Angeles, all the way through the wilderness up there to Salt Lake City on this track that you've told us about. Yeah. And... They have the story about how they got there, and you had a question about why is it that Brigham Young is okay with this story of being led there by spiritualist means for baptism when Brigham Young himself is so against spiritualism. Yes. And there's a piece here that I did not know. I'd like you to explain it. Oh, my gosh. Well, here's the thing. Anybody looking at this who has any familiarity with the Book of Mormon or has been a Mormon for any period of time knows about the story in the Book of Mormon. It's early on in the Book of Mormon with the Liahona, which is a brass object. It's a brass ball as it's described. It is a compass and it leads a small group of people from wicked Jerusalem through the wilderness to the promised land. Yeah. It's described as having two spindles. One spindle points the way that they should go in the wilderness and the other spindle has a special function whereon, from time to time, messages from God appear that can be read. And the text also tells us that the Liahona only works when the group have faith in it. And if they lose faith, then it stops working. That... that I, I, I need to, to go ahead and be, be transparent with the audience that before you told me that today, I had never heard the story. But it makes absolutely perfect sense that Brigham Young, who knew the story back and forward, would have seen in the planchette and the way that the, 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 the company came through the desert, would have seen a direct analogy to that story. It would have been very flattering to him since it's leading them from wicked Los Angeles to the promised land of the Salt Lake Valley. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it only adds to the merit of the gospel of Jesus Christ to welcome these folks in with open arms. Yes. Um, Lee or Bill, can you tell us what a Godbeite was? It was a breakaway offshoot for Mormonism. Bill, you yeah, can synopsize that, a lot better than I can, yeah. Uh, okay, give me Bill, two seconds. I'll just look it up really quick. But uh, it actually has to do with the person with the last name 
Godby. Godby. So Will. the Godbyites were members of the Godbyite Church, uh, organized in 1870 by William S. Godby. The dissident offshoot of the LDS Church was aimed towards embracing all belief systems known for embracing spiritualism and mysticism. The church died out by the 1880s. Um, it talks about how in 1868, Godby and other Mormon merchants began criticizing the economic demands and policies of Brigham Young in Utah Magazine that would eventually become the Salt Lake Tribune. Godby and other proponents were excommunicated from the church October 25th, 1869. Godby wanted to reform the LDS church and believed that political reform, breaking Young's control over secular matters in the territory, could help spur religious reform. They were the original core of Utah's liberal party. Uh, however, they became more explicitly anti-Mormon and critical of polygamy. The Godbyite influence in the party died out. Thank you for that, Bill. And, and if we want to bring Tom Lyon full circle with this, not only did Tom Lyon become a Godbyite, he became a card-carrying member of the Liberal Institute. He became a spiritualist. And when the spiritualists used to hold their annual gatherings all the way through the 1880s he was a speaker he and amasa lyman remember he had baptized him amasa lyman was excommunicated for being a spiritualist so he and amasa lyman were at all of these gatherings hmm. all the way through the 1870s and 1880s and among the godbyites was also at uh, edward college who was the great historian of salt lake city and right. just happened to be Thomas A. Line's biggest fan. Wow. Wow. So can I ask you this question, Lee? Yeah. Given the fact that Brigham Young could not have helped but see a Book of Mormon story come to life in this story about the Ouija board baptisms, as we've talked about, yeah. do you think yes. it's possible that anybody in that company, such perhaps as Cogswell or Marden, created the story with that in mind, that it be seen that way by Brigham Young and that they be accepted as sort of royalty when they got there? I think it's marginally possible. I would be very surprised if, mm -hmm. if that were possible. Bill Cogswell, Ed Martin, neither of them had any Mormon background or knew anything about the Mormon church past what uh, Jared Carter would have been able to tell them, and he, he would have been able to tell them very little. His father had been exiled and had become a reorganized Mormon before his death in 1849. And Jared was 11 when his father died. It's very unlikely that, that they knew Mormon lore that deeply. That, was, that just happened to be a rather serendipitous, uh, for, for Brigham Young, it was a serendipitous um, uh, happening. Brigham Young, I'm sure, saw it as the hand of God. Um, uh, Carrie and Jared uh, were under the impression that there, there was some spiritual influence there. Uh, but as far as any of them being, uh, being devout uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that was just Jared. Um, he died in 1874. Carrie lived on the largesse of Brigham Young for a while, but uh, pretty soon he was ignoring her and she was starving to death. And um, she started touring the, the with, with companies all over, um, not only Utah, but California. And she finally got a, a gig uh, with a, a touring company of Faust. 
for the last 30 years of her life that set her up rather well. And then Lincoln got famous and, and took care of her. Um, but uh, as for Cogswell and Marden, they kind of drifted around uh, both together and separately, first to Chicago and uh, then back and forth to New York. Marden dies in 1892 and Cogswell dies in 1906. Um, but let's go to the last slide and we can close everything out. Um, one of the interesting things about this by way of CODA is that um, uh, Jared Carter became the richest theater impresario in North America before film wiped him out. But he was still writing plays. And one of the plays that he wrote um, after Bill Cogswell had died, and I'm thinking that um, probably Bill Cogswell's death brought him in mind of the whole desert journey because he had been on that journey with his uncle. And he went on to write a, a play called The Spirit of Paul Dune, a powerful drama based on spiritualism. And it had an effect where, much like Disney and the Haunted Mansion, a ghost would fly above the audience, uh, much much to their uh, dismay and delight. And the spirit of Paul Dune did rather well uh, in 1907 and 1908. He sent out several touring companies of it. Um, but I can only think that, that this is in the timeline that Cogswell dies in 1906, and this puts him in mind of what had happened. And um, it, it, it just seems to me that, that Jared would have been thinking about that as he wrote the play. Hmm. And our final slide, please. So here we see a picture of Jared as an adult and or, uh, as Lincoln as an adult and then Lincoln as a child. And uh, I just, I just have in my mind this scene. Um, one could imagine Lincoln J. Carter sitting down to write the play late at night. He pauses, suddenly transported into a childhood reverie. He is six years old. He stands beside a campfire on a cool spring desert night. He's holding the hand of his Uncle Bill, who's gazing toward the wagon. Gideon is reading a passage of scripture which hangs in the evening air like an incantation, mingling with the smell of wood smoke and sage. Gideon concludes his reading and closes his Bible. Lincoln sees his Uncle Bill exchange a nod with Mr. Marden, who walks to the bed of the wagon where Lincoln's mother sits. His father has spread a piece of paper below the planchette to bear the evening's message. Lincoln's father exchanges places with Mr. Martin and stands beside the wagon, hat in hand, anxiously furrowing his brow. His mother and Mr. Martin face each other with their fingertips on the planchette between them, waiting, waiting for their spirit guides to speak. And scene. So that much, that uh, creative rendition that you did, you feel that that much is history, that that actually did happen. I'm, 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 re I'm recreating from the facts that I have um, a scene that probably took place. It took place every morning and every evening. They did that every morning and every evening. Well, we're, uh, Bill, can we open it up to lines? 
And while you're doing yeah, that, you have a couple calls in the phone bank. I actually wanted to ask a, a question, sort of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put. Give me a second to throw it up on that sure. screen. We've got this story in Mormonism. It's kind of a tangent story. It's hmm. Brigham Young's son, Brigham oh, Morris yeah. Young, who yes. uh, tended Adam... to. Yeah, he yeah. tended to play uh, females in yeah. uh, theatrical productions, and I'm just curious if there's any way that all of this buzz about theater over here ever seems to come in and affect this story because we don't really know how Brigham felt about his son who's, I, I don't want to, people say cross-dresser, but I don't know that. Like I know there's times in uh, world history where, oh. th that's okay. There's times in world history where men yes. dress up like women because women aren't really, active in the theater out of patriarchy, sexism, whatever. And, but some folks in Mormon history refer to Brigham Morris Young as cross-dressing. Regardless, mm -hmm. do we know of any impact that this right. sudden emphasis yeah. on theater and yeah. everybody participating um, connects to this? No, and, and first of all, I, I hey, absolutely Lee, I think you froze up. You you froze up there. Would you start over? To give give a shout out, shout out to uh, uh, to my colleague, the scholar. Okay, can you hear me now? Yep. Yes, sir. But not now. Not now. Okay, very good. I need now. to give a shout out to the not now. Okay. There's, I think you're kind of a hooked on a little delay here, unfortunately. Um, I'm wondering if maybe if you go out and come back in, Lee, and in the mo meantime, I can kind of set okay. up give you my question a little better. Okay. Okay. So while Lee's taking care of that, the reason I had asked Good. that question sort of okay. in an awkward way about you going I to the phone calls is because I had another question for Lee, and that is just so you can understand, they are receiving these messages every morning and every night, and it is directing them in every single detail of what it is they're to buy for equipment, where they're supposed to go. It is micromanaging the entire journey, this yeah. planchette and the spirit guide that they're following. And that's why they consult it every morning and every night along their trip, even after yeah. following its directions to go on the yeah. trip and the wagons they're supposed to get, all the supplies, that they go without any weapons because this force, the spirit guys, will protect them from any trouble along the way. And yeah, as you asked as you asked him that, I mean, he's saying probably not, but man, that there's a lot of similarities that seem deeply beneficial to the story resonating with Brigham Young as a Leahona story. And it may have been something that was genuinely going on, or it may have been a prank between the two on the other two, like Lee suggests. But it may have just played totally into this Book of Mormon narrative that even if they didn't realize it, Brigham Young couldn't help but see it. Right. Right. Uh, so hopefully he'll jump back in here for a moment. But um, And there are a couple of calls in the call bank, so we'll get to those here in a second too, folks. Please hang on. We'll, we'll get this all put back together. His audio just, as it got a little bit, a, a kind of a little nick here or there, uh, there at the end, it got a little rough. So, um, 
I, I, I kind of get bothered when folks again, I'm, I'm totally LGBT ally and, and all of that. I'm I'm bothered by the fact that when we tell the story about Brigham Morris Young, we re- I don't think we really know the story super well. We know that when he does the theater, he dresses up like a woman. I don't know that we know what he does in his personal life or private life away from the theater. And I don't know that most people know this. Maybe some do. But uh, and I think he's coming right back on. But men tended to play female roles, especially in ancient, not just ancient, but less than modern uh, theater because women were essentially not there to play a primary role. But go ahead, Lee. Yes, that, that's true of Shakespeare's England. Uh, and women are introduced in uh, in the English tradition uh, after the French have already done it uh, on stage at, at the uh, in the restoration of uh, Charles II. So w- women women are are women are playing women, men are playing men. And obviously, uh, you've, ta- you've told us about Carrie Carter. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's. I. I mean, it's. It. It. It has always been an American tradition that whenever there has been theater, there. Uh. There, that women have played women, men have played men. But there's also a tradition of men impersonating women, and in the 19th century, female impersonators made a lot of money. Um. I, I have to, at this point, give a shout out to my colleague and the greatest expert on female impersonation and, um, and cross-dressing and drag uh, uh, within the, the, the LDS and its, and its traditions, Connell O'Donovan, um, who uh, is just, he's, he's done absolutely terrific work on this. Um, but uh, as as far as it being a thing that theater um, came into the Mormon community and then induced uh, uh, men to dress as women, um, that was already happening. It, it was already a theatrical tradition. Just the LDS followed suit, or at least those members of the LDS who wanted to do theater. Yeah, and one of our commenters is actually noting the same person, Connell O'Donovan, yeah. and noting, noticing the same thing I was pointing out, which I want to be historically accurate, and his research showed that Brigham Morris Young, as far as could be told by what we know, wasn't a gay man to his knowledge of research, if if Donnie mm-hmm. Lee Gringo remembers correctly. I don't yes. know the answer to that, but, but was there any connection to this with any of this story? Like, Do we know if Brigham Morris Young gets interested in theater or do we know any connection there i guess the only the only thing that i could say about that is we can be absolutely sure that brigham morris young was personally acquainted with both thomas a line and with carrie carter gotcha and same and time once period, they're one, all in the theater same yeah. time period they're all in the they're well he's a younger man but yeah. they're all in the you know they're they, they, everybody's around town i mean at one point carrie and Carrie and Tom Line live within three or four blocks of each other, and they're co-parenting. If you can, if you can call that kind of acrimony co-parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, oh, and another thing is that Walter Line, dramatic uh, company. He he was as twelve years old. He was on this journey um, as a supernumerary. He would take all the extra parts. Um, he never acknowledged any 
any relationship to the theater at all for the rest of his life. He was done. And um, he became a very prominent person in Salt Lake City. He was a, a, he was a wool merchant. Then he owned a, a pharmaceutical store and company. And finally, he, uh, he was excommunicated um, for uh, being part of the Liberal Institute, and he became a Presbyterian. And he died in 1936 or 8, somewhere in there. Gotcha. Okay. Do you, are you ready, Arf? And we can go to a few phone calls if you're ready as well, Lee. I'm ready. I think that'd be great. Sweet. Yeah. So let's do it. Um, I believe the first call is going to be Abby. Abby, are you there? Yeah, I am. Can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. Yes. Go ahead. Hi, Abby. Okay, great. Um, well, my question or my comment was about with Thomas Lyon, how he brought theater into the Mormon zeitgeist um, and made it something that was more acceptable within the Mormon community where it maybe wasn't accepted in a lot of other religious communities. And yes. it was interesting to me to think about how that may have impacted the way that theater and pageantry has been incorporated into Mormon culture now. I'm thinking yes. of a lot of the recently discontinued big Mormon pageants like the Martin Harris pageant, the Hill Kimura pageant, Nauvoo and Manti, as well as like the road shows that were really popular within wards and stakes for much of Mormon history. And I just wonder how much that may have played into that or if that connection had kind of helped impact how big musical theater is, even just among like Mormon teenagers. I think that it's more popular among Mormon teenagers now than it is in the regular culture yeah, Abby, Abby, I'm glad you bring this up because I think there's an absolutely direct connection. And I and and it all goes back to Thomas Lyne and his influence on Hiram Clausen. And it's it's for that re it's 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 for that reason that there's so direct a connection that it absolutely astounds me that there's not more curiosity about this guy. No one has done work on him. As far as I know, the biography that I'm writing about Thomas Lyne is the first ever done. And I, I think there's, there's lots more, lots more to be, uh, to be examined there. Because without Lyne doing the plays uh, for, uh, without Lyne introducing theater to Nauvoo, um, there is no Deseret Dramatic Company. There's just not. There, there wasn't a grand theatrical tradition among the Latter-day Saints before 1844. And the first thing they do when they get to Utah is set up the, uh, a social hall and the, the theatricals that are, are performed at the Bowery and that that's those that's the foundation of the Salt Lake Theater and then who who ends up um, who ends up running the Salt Lake Theater but Hiram Clausen who hires his mentor Thomas A line to be the elocutionist for the company mm. so i think there's a direct connection to the pageantry of of to the later pageantry in the in the in the church mm. that's cool okay thanks Lee, there's i think there's a theory out there uh, and this is world history, not just LDS history, sure. but that um, theater has its origins in the temple, anciently. And it's yeah. interesting to me that 
to the degree that that's correct, we seem to see sort of a recapitulation of that in Nauvoo. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, it, it's it's interesting that Edwin Edward he he went by both at some at some point in his life. Tullidge, the historian, said uh, the 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 temple. Um, is is the bastion of orthodoxy, but the theater is as orthodox among Mormons as the temple. Hmm. And Thomas A. Line was Joseph's actor, and he knew the weight those words would carry in eighteen in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties. Do you mean actor? In, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> Joseph's actor. He ah. identified. He identified. Uh, line specifically as Joseph's actor and he was his acolyte and his cheerleader for line's entire life until he could not act anymore and finally when, when he died in 1890 uh, he made national headlines as the as the oldest actor old, oldest surviving actor in America hmm and we did have a second call there, but they hung up. They were asking, though, I can try to maybe frame their question. They were asking about the the book I, that's being written about all of this or that can be yes. that shows some of this research. What is the name of the book they were asking? Uh, the, the, there, there are two books that I'm working on. One is called mm -hmm. Joseph's Actor. Uh, it's a biography of Line. And the second is called Dramatic Combinations. And it's about the the interweavings of the lines the carters and um and the cog and the cogashals uh which was the birth name of both bill and carrie uh cogswell and how it, it and th this the the planchette journey is part of that book or will be part of that book as soon as i can convince a publisher that anyone will buy the book uh <laughs> would you tell them uh, i'll buy it I'll buy it. Oh, okay. okay. All right. I have. I've got one. Do I hear two? Do I hear two? Mm -hmm. Maven, are you there? I Can I convince you to buy a copy people, of the book? There's at least a hundred people in our audience who would snap okay. that up. Snap. That okay. Up, very good. It, eventually, it, it, eventually, it will find an outlet, and we'll get this stuff out there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, it, it's it it's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I, I have. I have. Uh, I have burned the ears of my friends with this information for a long time, and it's delightful to be able to share it with you tonight on this program that I admire so much. Yeah, I, well, I just I deeply much. appreciate you know the the PowerPoint you put together is beautiful. The story is interesting. Um, I think RFM's connection to the Leahona is fascinating. Um, knowing that this yes. happened during the lifetime of Joseph Smith, just months before he died, and all the stuff that went into the endowment uh, it, it's such a, it's got so many facets to it. And it is interesting how theater as the, uh, the caller asked on the, the first call there, the theater played a, a part in how Mormonism really does with road shows and all the pageants that it, it uh, does in various places until it didn't. Uh, it, it seems like theater plays a pretty significant part in the history of Mormonism. It does. So, Let's find out more about those roots, because yeah. I think they're I, they're really significant. Yeah, thank and you for your time, and, there, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Slide. Yeah, please. 
Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's been a real joy to have you here. Bill, thank Thank you you. as always for your yeomanship work and Maven, whose mic apparently has gone out. Thank you so much for everything you do behind the scenes and in front of them. I didn't know this story before we did it. Did you know this story, RFM? Not at all. Yeah, me either. I'm always fascinated that there's so much Mormon history yet to be discovered. So anyway, thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again, okay. Lee. And thanks to everybody for watching. Please join us again next week at 6.10, excuse me, 6.20 p.m. I better let you announce Mountain this, time. Bill. And, and I should know. 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time, right? On Wednesdays, every Wednesday. Yeah. And, and I'll just say kind of as a closing comment, too, aside from the topic tonight, Maven's asking me to mention it. Um, I was interviewed by Mormon Stories about a month ago. It just went uh, out, published. Uh I'm really proud of the conversation that took place between my wife and I uh, and John and his wife, Margie. And uh, if folks want to check that out, go to Mormon Stories YouTube channel and you can uh, watch it there. And uh, folks, I'm just, uh, I think it's a fun time that we're having doing the show Mormonism Live and such a cool chance to do history. I'm thinking next week, RFM, that we'll talk about Samuel Brannan in the Brooklyn. Ah, Samuel, ah, Samuel ah. Brannan in the what? The Brooklyn. The Brooklyn? Oh, you don't know this story? The Brooklyn? Oh, my goodness. I've known this story for decades. Well, Samuel Brandon is called by Brigham Young to go to California to prepare a place for the Saints to go when they go west. The Saints decide to go to Salt Lake City. Samuel Brandon stays in California, and the story is insane. Oh, he's that guy. Yeah, that guy. He, he's, that, he's that guy. He's the – should I – I, I I don't want to give away what the, the town that he founds, but um, he's he was also he knew Tom Line very very well. Mm. Oh, was it? I'll Brandon see if Bell? I can make a connection. To there's that. a there's a line connect. I I can I can give you more information. Please, about that if you'd yeah, like. send it to me we'll, in an email we'll and I'll add it to the we'll show talk. next week. I love it. Okay, great. Everybody, join next week to learn about Samuel Brandon in the Brooklyn. Great, sounds exciting. Wonderful. Okay. Rocky. Thank you.